Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there, you are listening to episode 312 of Sexology Podcast. Today we're going to talk about what happens to your body and mind when you lose your virginity. I know most of you guys are in later stages of your life, but I know for most people, their first sexual encounter is something that they remember for the rest of their lives. So if you had an experience that was negative, neutral, or wasn't what you expected, sometimes for people it's hard to move past that and they have some emotions around those experiences which we'll talk about how you can create meaning out of those experiences also as some of you guys know I have a Farsi podcast that's majority of the listeners are conservative people inside Iran and I get a lot of questions about virginity tests repairing the hymen all of those of things that unfortunately some women are faced to do face to experience when they are living in a patriarchal society and their virginity quote unquote is the huge value for 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 their family and for their marriage i'm going to talk a little bit about the stories i heard from my listeners in that podcast at the end of the show but today we're going to talk about the, as i mentioned the first sexual encounters and we're going to talk about what does it mean for someone to be a virgin we're going to talk about how how can women improve their experiences during their first sexual encounters? We're going to talk about what can the partner do to help them to have good sexual experiences during the first time and after first time. Our guest today is Dr. Ashley Towns. Dr. Towns has over 15 years of experience providing sexuality education across a variety of academic and public health entities. Dr. Towns currently works in a postdoctoral research role in Atlanta. Dr. Town's research focuses on the sexual experiences of Black women, including partner experiences, accessing health information, and utilizing sexual health services. She also co-authored 15 peer-reviewed publications, and she's been featured in so many different platforms. You can read her full bio in the show notes. Before we dive into the episode today, I wanted to take a moment and thank our sponsor, OMGS.com. OMGS.com is a website with findings from the largest ever research study in women's pleasure. In partnership with Kinsey Institute researchers, they asked 10 of thousands of women what made their sexual pleasure better, solo and partnered. And then they created this wonderful platform that includes videos, animations, and how-tos. If you are interested to check out their website, you can go to omgs.com slash sexology. Again, the website is omgs.com sexology. I often recommend their website to my clients and I tell you all about how we've been using it in our sessions at the end of the episode. All right, here's my conversation with Dr. Ashley Towns. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Ashley Towns to our show. Dr. Ashley, welcome to our show. 
Yeah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I am looking forward to this conversation. You know, I was conflicted to talk about it, but I've been getting a lot of questions about it because it's on, on one hand, majority of our listeners are couples in heterosexual relationships and they are like in their 30s and 40s and beyond. But they had a lot of questions about virginity. And it's, I think part of it, it comes from the conservative background that they have. And it was interesting to see that you have writings on it. I know you talked about it. So tell us, how is virginity defined? Yeah, you know, thinking about this topic, I know how controversy it can, how much controversy it can bring. Like your listeners, I, I have a similar upbringing. And so I think traditionally what we think, when we think of virginity is, you know, penile vaginal intercourse. We think of that first, you know, sexual encounter as being, you know, when you lose your virginity. And so that's 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 kind of the typical way that it's defined. And so I'll use that as, you know, the main definition or the the main way that we'll think about it and talk about it today. And that is so even back then I grew up in a conservative background. And back then I was very surprised to understand that okay, virginity means no vaginal kind of penal penetration, but there's a galaxy of kind of very fun, kinky stuff that you can do <laughs> that doesn't involve that. Yeah. And it's it's interesting how narrow minded the sex is defined in, in, in that context. And I think what is very disturbing that I heard about is this idea of repairing virginity, which it's it's interesting that there are, we'll talk about there are tests to examine one's virginity and there are options for repairing it. So tell us mm -hmm. more about your thoughts on that. Yeah. So I'm trying to think, where do I want to start? I'll start <laughs> with talking about the tests first. So yes, there are virginity tests. We don't hear about them as often in the U.S. because they are illegal. And so we probably never grew up having a virginity test. But basically what that is, is where it's a, it's a practice or a process in which someone is examining or determining if the hymen is still intact or not broken. And so this can be done as a cultural practice with other women or family members. It can be done by a medical provider. But as I mentioned, it's not done in the U.S. And so, but but it, it can happen. And in some cultures, it does happen. And if it is not intact, then there may be next steps, which would be to repair the hymen, which involves, you know, stitching the tissue around the hymen so that it is indeed closed up. It involves tightening the vagina so that if there was penetration, that there would be some blood presence, which would indicate that that woman is still a virgin. Again, these are very controversial beliefs and practices, and the World Health Organization deems these type of tests or practices as violence against women and that they should not be practiced. So, you know, that's not something that I encourage or practice or believe in or promote. I think that it leads to a lot of harmful, long-lasting effects to the young woman or girl or whomever is having her virginity tested, but also potentially having her hymen repaired. And there's a lot of trauma that associated with that. And we're we're moving away from trauma. We're trying to talk more about pleasure 
as it relates to women and all of the pleasurable experiences that she can have. So those types of things are really negative and don't enhance the idea of pleasure when it comes to sexual activity. And what's interesting, it's twisted kind of idea that people have about hymen. People think it's like a balloon that burst. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or sex. like, you know, like the the thing, the common thing is like popping a girl's cherry. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've had to tell people in, when I used to teach human sexuality, there is no cherry up there. Like you're not popping a cherry. There is no physical cherry that is being popped. It's, it's you know, a thin layer of tissue that, you know, can be torn or broken from using a tampon, for instance, and you don't even notice it because if you're menstruating, you would expect there to be blood. And it's not a gush of blood. I think people assume that it's going to be this hard rush of blood, and that's not typically what happens either. There is a presence of blood if the hymen is broken, but folks can have a torn hymen from a lot of different things, riding a bike, falling, you know, or injuring their body in different ways. So, yeah, we are going to change the way we think about this whole thing. This is, again, it's, as you said, it's violence against women when people are trying to, quote unquote, repair it or use it as as a value. So, so it's, you know, you talk about it being a social construct. Uh-huh. So tell us... Tell us more about that. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So a lot of people, they hear of the word social construct, not really sure what it means. So the way I'm going to talk about it is I'm going to give an example. So social constructs are things that certain cultures or certain societies, they come up with a definition and that's the definition they stick with. So virginity is one of those things because we do not have a, a biological indicator of when someone loses their virginity, like we have for puberty. So for women, when you're going through puberty, you have a lot of women experience acne or they experience, you know, their breasts growing, they experience a menstrual cycle. Those are key indicators that we can use to determine that a young woman is moving from childhood through adolescence into adulthood. We don't have that for virginity. Another social construct is, you know, how we view colors around gender, you know, pink versus green. There is nothing that says that pink equals girl and, you know, blue equals boy or that, you know, certain skin tones equal a certain race. You know, we have a lot of different social constructs in, you know, the United States and across the world. And they change depending on which culture you're in, which lets you know that it's not really a factual thing. It's really a societal norm or a societal understanding of the meaning of that thing. So if it changes, then it's more likely a social construct or social norm within that specific society. And it's it's interesting that how it's defined differently kind of in different cultures, as you mentioned, and how the negative impact it has on a woman's confidence, on their sexual health and sexual self-esteem. So and I know that even going back to the concept of hymen, there are type of women that they don't have hymen. And my understanding, I want to double check about that, is hymen is something that you have for the rest of your life. So it can get repaired on its own. So it's not something that bursts and disappears for everyone. Do I get that right? So from my understanding, it is, you know, you know, a a, a tissue that we just like we have, you know, various tissues, you know, in our vaginal lining and our vaginal walls. And so, yes, some people's are, are intact and some people's are not intact. But unless there's, you know, a physical examination to determine whose is intact and who's not, 
we don't really know who's a virgin and who's not if we're using that as our definition or or our way to determine with with penetration. There are lots of women who have, you know, painful sexual intercourse. And so they don't they don't want to have penetrative intercourse and they may choose not to engage in that. There's a lot of different varieties of, you know, the size of the vagina the, the depth of the vagina and all of those things have an impact on whether or not someone's hymen is, you know, intact or not intact. And so, yeah, I think if we, you know, put virginity and put using a hymen as an indicator or, you know, penetration as an indicator of virginity, we're sort of boxing sexual activity up and we're not, we're, we're leaving out all of the other activities. As you, as you talked about earlier, we're leaving out all these other activities that people could be or are engaging in that they may value as their, you know, their starting point or their first sexual encounter, like kissing, for instance. Kissing is a sexual activity that is often the first encounter that people have. And yet we don't talk about that at all. We don't talk about anal penetration. We don't talk about oral penetration. Some people engage in oral sex before they engage in vaginal penile sex or before they engage in anal penal sex. And so that could be their first sexual encounter, but we're leaving all of that out. We're erasing queer identities when we talk about virginity being specifically between a penis and a vagina. We're erasing, we're not talking about sexual diversity with with all the different types of activities I just described. We're really limiting ourselves to think that our first sexual encounter has to be one way with one type of partner, we leave out masturbation and, you know, finger penetration, toy penetration. We're leaving out all of that by saying that virginity has to be one way. And so that's where we have an opportunity to change the way we think about sexual activity and first sexual encounter and, and what that looks like for people. And I know that many people that are our listeners perhaps grew up with that kind of culture, with that mentality, and now they are at a place that they they want to unlearn some of those messaging. And also they want to create a better construct and new narrative around it. How would that look like? Yeah. So in the article that I wrote with Yael, it stemmed from, so let me go back a little bit. (laughs) I did an, an Instagram live with a sexual wellness company because we wanted to first talk about this topic and engage their audience with the topic about what people have learned, what do they think, what should we do about it? And then we kind of took our takeaways and and wrote a blog article about that. And so we really started to think about that. Like, what would we want to talk about? How, How would we talk about it? What language would we use? And we really kind of landed on the idea of a sexual debut. So if you talk about sexual encounters as a sexual debut, then one, you have ownership of that. So it is your definition, how you define what you, how you're defining your sexual debut to be. What activity or activities are included in that? It gives you autonomy to say, this is what sex looks like for me based off of my gender identity, my sexual attraction, my partner or partners, and this is what I want it to look like. And, and I did that. So now I've, I've had my debut. And that doesn't look the same for everyone. It's not going to be at the same age. It's not going to be, you know, this perfectly packaged way of doing it. It's really an opportunity for people to to picture it for themselves, 
you know, a sexual debut for one person could be their first kiss. For another person could be sexual exploration with their body. So, so masturbation, it could be mutual masturbation with someone else and they're exploring together. It could be penetration, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't be one thing for every person because we are individuals. And so if we reframe the discussion around a debut, then everyone's debut is personalized to them. And I think that's a much better way to think about it. And it allows for us to be inclusive and diverse and it, it, it allows for acceptance and it allows for understanding, conversation. And that's where I think we really need to move towards that direction. I love that. Like it gives the put the agency back on the individual on how, mm-hmm. what part of it is important for them. How would they like to shape that narrative? So I think it's mm-hmm. such a interesting way of putting it. For many people, I know the first, when they think about the first encounter as you mentioned they talk about like for heterosexual relationship they think about the first intercourse that they had and majority of people they remember the first partner their first encounter that's tend to be something that's present in their mind and the stories and the meaning they make out of that first encounter also is kind of at times shape their sexual identity so for i know you work with teach a college student you you have interaction with them so what are some of the things that people need to keep in mind the younger women as you're entering different stages of exploring their sexuality and how can they improve that those experiences yeah so I think again going back to just thinking about because as you were as you were explaining I was thinking back to my own first encounter and I think that for some people their sexual encounter is 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 one that they chose to be in and for others it's not for others there's sexual trauma or rape that took place and so we have to be knowledge we have to acknowledge that And think about, of course, you know, we always teach about consent and knowing that consent can be withdrawn at any time. So I think that if we're thinking about our first sexual encounter or our sexual debut, we want to be mindful, our own understanding of our expectations for the sexual encounter, how comfortable we are talking about our expectation, how comfortable we are expressing if the expectation is not the reality. So if you thought it was going to be one way and it's not and you're uncomfortable, being able to say, I'm uncomfortable, I I would like to stop or I would like to change what we're doing or this is not, this does not feel good. Like I thought it would. Can we slow down? Can we stop? Can we change, you know, how we're doing this? I think that's a good place to start is starting from within about, you know, again, your expectations and your communication skills, because I think that's really where we go to the next level, which is talking about pleasure and improving pleasure is you have to know that you want pleasure, that that's an expectation for you and not sex has an orgasm component, but it can still be pleasurable. Understanding that pleasure does not equal orgasm, but that orgasm is a part of pleasure. And of course, being able to communicate what is pleasurable or or what you would like your partner to do to bring you pleasure. So, you know, those two kind of go hand in hand, I think. And I think that's where I would start with empowering women to know their expectations, to explore their bodies and know what's pleasurable 
and then have the skills to communicate that and to also communicate when it's not. That is so important to kind of voice when things are not working the way that you want it, but also the expectation of I'm doing this because I deserve pleasure, right? I know sometimes mm-hmm. people do things to as a way to please their partner or re- kind of keep their relationship. And they, in the best case, they think pleasure is a bonus for them. But I think going with yeah. the mindset and expectation, I'm going to experience pleasure. I think that's going to be very helpful. And as you said, it could include orgasm or not. But I think people like as as individual get to decide that that what mm-hmm. what means for me to what what is my intention from this sexual encounter and kind of like voicing the part when it's not going well or it's like your partner needs guidance can be tricky what are some of the suggestions you have about that part yeah that's definitely the harder part right <laughs> of the two is communicating. And so I think that one way to do that is to start the communication up front. So having conversations about what you think or what you would like your partner to do and, you know, having that ongoing conversation, whether that be in person or sexting or whatever that looks like for you. But to just, you know, talk them through that. You can also, you know, take a very simple type of thing that we learned early in life, which was like show and tell and do show and tell with your partner of like, this is actually what I, this is what I meant when I wanted you to touch me here or do this there. But that starts from sexual aspiration on your own and knowing how to guide your partner and then being willing to learn from them as well. I think sometimes we take previous experiences with previous partners and we try to apply that directly to another partner and, th- and we find that it doesn't work because that's a different person and they may view pleasure differently and they may experience pleasure differently. And for us as women, you know, we know that the clitoris provides a lot of pleasure. We know that a lot of women experience orgasms from clitoral stimulation. And we say that, but we don't explain how to experience that pleasure. So whether the touching is orally or manually or using sex toys, you know, the importance of lube. Some people feel like if they use lube, that it's it's a negative thing, that their, their bodies isn't lubricating the way that it should. And that's a misconception we need to change. Lube is an enhancer. It is to enhance what the body is doing and it's to be a tool that you can use. And so, you know, teaching people about the buffet of tools that they can use to enhance their sexual experiences, empowering them to have those tools ready and then using them should they desire to use them, you know, having access to those things. So it's a lot of different ways that we can go about communicating. But first, it starts with asking questions, giving answers, guiding partners, and, you know, moving slowly through the encounters so that you can give feedback in the moment and not waiting until the end to give feedback and then talking about it at the end. What worked well? What didn't work well? What what did they do a great job? How did they listen well? How did they perform or not necessarily perform, but how did they how did they take what you were saying and apply it? Did they do that well? Did they stop? And when you said that something didn't feel good or that angle didn't feel good and they repositioned and you like that they listen to you and you're giving them positive feedback 
for that. I think that that that's a great way to enhance the sexual experience for all people involved, especially women, I like that. because we don't speak up enough. <laughs> right. And I think women and kind of again, going back to a heterosexual relationship that many women, they don't know their body enough. Many of women, they haven't ex- examined their body enough. So they it's, it's even hard for themselves to know what they like. And even giving the feedback is also more challenging. And often they hear from my clients, they're saying that, you know, whatever you're doing, it's going to be good. <laughs> Instead of kind of like giving a specific direction to the partner, I think that's that's really important. And at times, I tell people to experiment how the partner, if this is a new partner, takes no and how he reacts to the no that you're giving, mm-hmm. because that's data, right? If you are engaging in foreplay and you're kind of like you're saying no to something and he continues, then he might not be as responsive as in escalates. But I guess the other part of it is people can be great at hearing no during foreplay, but still mm-hmm. can bad thing can happen during core play. So I think it's important for us to have our own back when we are with a partner and kind of like being mindful of what what makes us feel comfortable and what adds pleasure. And I like that you're talking about enhancements, like always come thinking about, okay, if I want to, what else I can add to make things more exciting and more pleasurable for me? I think that that is also important. Do you recommend people to talk to their partner about kind of safe word, about kind of like how can they gonna communicate a pause during mm-hmm. the interaction? Yeah, I was actually gonna say that next that, you know, s- sometimes that may be an easier way than saying no is to come up with a safe word. And so I, again, all of that conversation should take place before the sexual activities start so that you are both on the same page or, I mean, if we're talking about heterosexual sex, if you're both on the same page. So, you know, via text or sext or whatever that looks like, you know, saying, you know, how would you feel if, you know, I had lube or how would you feel if I, you know, bought a sex toy? Would you be willing to watch me use it? Or if I used it, you know, would that be something that's interesting or desirable or does that turn you on, you know? And even when it comes to safe words, like, you know, if you want to try something that you haven't tried before and you say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in trying it. Are you interested? You both agree you're interested. Okay, well, let's start slow with this thing. And let's, you know, if, if I feel that, you know, it's uncomfortable, you know, I would like to say this word so that you and I both know that I, I don't like it. It's it's not what I expected. Doesn't feel good to me because it, it could be hard to say no, stop, because you may not want to stop the sexual activity altogether. You may just want to stop that specific thing. So a safe word can be a great way to be clear that you're not stopping everything, but you're stopping that very specific thing. That's that's really important for people to think about. Like it, it's it's helpful to kind of be mindful of your boundaries, communicating it, and also as as we we're talking about that consent is reversible. Even if in the middle of the sexual experience you're doing something yet you thought it would feel good and be pleasurable, and for any reason you don't want to engage in it, then you have the right to kind of like use the safe word or saying no. So your partner know that that you are you're not willing to continue before we close our session is there any other thing that you think would be important for our listeners to know before kind of like being intimate with someone new 
Yeah. I mean, I think, of course, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about prevention, you know, sexual health overall. So, of course, you know, for the first encounter, as well as with any new partner, of course, it's very important that you are aware of your sexual health. And so that means, you know, regular preventative screenings, you know, before a new partner or before, you know, you engage in any type of sexual intercourse that you're going to be exchanging bodily fluids. There are an array of contraceptive methods and barrier methods, but it's not just knowing that they exist. It's having them ready and knowing how to use them. So for years and years, we talk about using condoms and using condoms and using dental dams. But if people don't know how to use them correctly, it doesn't matter. If people don't know when to put them on or when, when do you stop foreplay and go into now we need to use a condom. If you're not taught how to communicate that and be on the same page with your partner, it does no good. So, you know, being aware and including those things in the conversation as well around, you know, testing and condom usage. If you want to use condoms, if you're on birth control and you you don't want to use condoms, some some women don't like them. And and if their partner's okay with that, then if they're on the same page, then that's all that matters. There should not be a forcible, you know, belief one way or another about what people choose to engage in. The main thing is that you and your partner are on the same. You're not forced into something. They're not forced into something. You either agree and you move forward or you don't agree and you don't. And so I think that's that's another important aspect of it is communicating about sexual health. You know, there's lots of different options out there. There's prep, you know, that women can take and you know, or men, but, you know, just knowing what your options are, being comfortable talking about those options with your doctor, as well as with your partner, getting their feel for it, because you don't want to go into a sexual encounter thinking, okay, we're going to have condoms, we're going to use condoms, and then they don't have one, and you don't have one, or, you know, you want to use one, but they never actually put one on, and then you don't say anything, you just keep going. Um, That's another form of a no, that you or a boundary that you have to be able to communicate and advocate for if that's what you want. So, you know, practice talking about those things and practice practice talking about all of these things. You're only going to get better the more you talk about it. It's going to be uncomfortable up front because you probably haven't done it before or you have, but it didn't go so well. But the more you do it, the more comfortable you are. And honestly, the more comfortable the woman is talking about it, the easier I have found the man is willing to talk about it and agree because he wants to have sex just like she does. So I think we are only our best advocate. So, you know, advocate for yourselves, advocate for your pleasure, advocate for your boundaries and advocate for your health. Well, I think that you mentioned so many great points. And for people who are interested to go deeper on kind of prevention, STI prevention, or kind of like pregnancy, family planning tools, we have episodes on that. We'll make sure we'll leave a link on those to those episodes so you can go deeper on those topics. But I bet that there are many of our listeners that they want to learn more about you. So where can they find you and your content? Yeah. So a lot of my blogs are are with Pure Romance. So they're a sexual wellness company. I don't work for them, but I do provide content for their wellness blog. So I'm not a Pure Romance consultant and I don't sell their products, but I provide education and tools that or conversations that people can have about different topics. That is their Live Alive Wellness blog. I'm also pretty present on on Instagram. I don't really use any other platforms 
because I don't have the time to manage multiple. But I am on there and I do have a link in my bio to resources, blogs that I've written, papers that I've written or anything that I find interesting that I have not written but think people should know about. So I'm on Instagram, Dr. Ashley Towns. And so like I said, in the bio, there is a variety of links that that you can access for free. And, And if there's other things that you're curious about, happy to write on those topics if I've missed something <laughs> or, or I can point to colleagues who have done it. So that's kind of where you can find me and my work. And I hope to find you there as well so we can talk more about all the different sexual health topics that need more attention. Well, thank you so much for writing about this topic. Thank you so much for talking about it in our show. And I'm sure it helped many of our listeners and hopefully we can have you in future episodes. Sure. (laughs) Bye there. Bye now. I hope you guys found our conversation meaningful. And if you have a young daughter or sister that you want to share this episode with her, I think that can help her to improve her first experience. As I mentioned during the interview, my experience was neutral to negative. So I wish I had some of the information that we talked about today. And it's unfortunate on how many women feel the pressures about having enact high men. And one of the stories Stories I got from my listeners after I did a podcast episode in Farsi that she went to the gynecologist who examined their hymen and the gynecologist the story for like 25 years ago talked to her fiance then that the type of a hymen he, she has is not going to have the bleeding and at the night of the wedding the husband ended up cutting part of his arm so he can present the blood to his family and the wife was so resentful that she said like we got divorced after several years but I was so disgusted by how important it was for the family to be presented of a bloodstained cloth which I couldn't ever see him in the same light and if you guys had negative to neutral experiences I want you to know that that's unfortunately common sometimes when I talk to my clients who are younger I see that they have unrealistic expectation of how their first time is supposed to be. But for majority of people, it's like a skill that the more that you're doing it, the more you have resources that will help you to become a better lover, the better experiences you will have. On that note, I wanted to thank our sponsor, OMGS, at the end of this episode. I was so excited when they reached out to me to be my sponsor, which was interesting is that I already recommend their website to my clients. This is one of those tools that when I recommend to my clients, they get so much out of their tools, regardless of how advanced they are, how kinky their sex life is. Because this website is unique in a way that it teaches you different ways that people pleasure themselves, connect with their bodies. And it's like talking to your close friend. I don't know about you guys, but some of the best sexual tips that I got was through the conversation I had with real people talking about their real experiences. And I'm lucky enough that I'm exposed to colleagues and friends that are open-minded. But this website is like that. 
These are real people that they talk about different strategies and techniques that they use in order to kind of bring excitement back to the relationship, improve their sex life. And they have a special discount for you to, you can check it out. The website is omgyes.com slash sexology. And when you go there, first of all, you will support our show because you are supporting our sponsors and also they will offer a free discount for you. You can go to their website, omgs.com slash sexology for a special discount. And if you are a psychologist, doctor, they will offer a free access, personal access for you. So you can check that out as well. All right. Thank you so much for listening to our show. I cannot wait until next week. Same time, same place. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.